You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I want to suggest to us this morning that a mind set on heaven finds hope to live today. Hope for our lives, hope for our relationships, hope for our families, hope for our work, hope for our church, hope for our city, hope for our country, and hope for this whole creation. Minds set on heaven find hope for life today. This summer I was in Colorado I was uh, coming out of the mountains in a rental car on I-70. And, you know, I was just kind of daydreaming, as pastors can do, and uh, not really looking at the road in front of me very much. And all of a sudden, I realized all the cars in front of me were stopped. I was heading towards Denver, so you understand that. And uh, I screeched on the brakes. And I went from 60 to zero miles per hour in about three car lengths. And I, you know, sort of... A hot flash rush of adrenaline, and I uh, looked in my rearview mirror to see if the end was near, or how near the end was. <laughs> and, and what I saw was, of course, two faces that just got really large, really quickly, right there in the frame of the mirror. And it was, it was, it was a young adult couple, they were in this sporty kind of Gen X, little mini S, boxy SUV type of a deal. And... Uh, they had the same reaction that I had. I could tell on their faces, but I could also see that a conversation was beginning uh, between these two. See, the woman was at the wheel, and uh, this man was sitting uh, on her right next to her, and um, after they both looked up, he looked over at her, and he had something to say to her. And I don't know what it was, but I was getting the message pretty clearly because it looked like this, you know, the wild gesticulations and the expression on his face of, like, astonishment. I, I, I imagine he was saying something like, you know, I have told you a thousand times it's five car lengths at 60 miles per hour on the freeway. You know, and she was sort of looking down and she's going, you know, I there was plenty of room. Nobody expects a moron to stop at in three car lengths at 60 miles an hour. And, and he went on and she went back and forth. And uh, it was a long time before the traffic started again, but it continued on for the next 20 minutes, stop and go. And I was always checking in my rearview mirror because the conversation got more and more interesting. And I, you know, I realized it was, as they were talking, that it couldn't just be about the driving. You, you know, and oftentimes when you and I get angry, it's not just about the thing in front of us. I, I realized that these two were tapping into wells of disappointment that were deep. And possibly very near to the surface, as oftentimes our wells of disappointment are. And as I drove, I thought, there's a great irony. Because I'm looking in my rearview mirror, and I'm seeing two people who are missing the beauty of Colorado. Out my windshield, mountain ranges, snow-capped people, absolutely stunning beauty. But, but I see two people whose lives seem to have shrunk so much that they actually fit in my rearview mirror. <laughs> see, the contrast between what they were looking at 
And what we all could see if we just opened our eyes and saw the bigger panorama in front of us was dramatic. And I thought to myself, I, I relate to those two so much. I relate to the guy. Um, for probably first of all, because I think he was right. She was too close to me. <laughs> Secondly, because I'm a horrible backseat driver, especially in the front seat, especially with my wife, Anne. And also because I, I'm just a critical person. I, I'd be honest, I, I, um, I'm too critical. And I've told that to you before. I'm particularly critical, and I don't know why this is, with people I love the most. It just seems absolutely backward. And I thought to myself, I could see myself in that car. I could see myself forgetting so much, forgetting the panorama. I mean, they've forgotten that they're alive, which had just been questionable a moment earlier. <laughs> they've forgotten that they're sitting next to a person who wants to be in the car with them. They've forgotten what reason it was that got them in the car in the first place and where they're going. All of that has just, it's just fallen away, it's just sort of shaken loose in the trauma of an obstacle that's right in their path. A surprise. And they've lost perspective. How frequently that happens to me. And I'm willing to bet some of us here lose perspective about as quickly. And so it's therefore that the Apostle Paul gives us this great invitation in Colossians chapter 3, and I would invite you to open up your Bible to this text on page 957 of the Pew Bible, at least. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And uh, if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud. This is God's people. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. And by the way, as you read, look for this invitation, this great imperative, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. So you, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but what you just read uh, lasts forever. Please be seated. Seek the things above a new perspective. This is the central imperative of the entire letter that Paul writes to the Colossians. It's got four chapters. Right here in the middle is the hinge. Right here at the beginning of chapter 3. Paul just is as clear and as straightforward as he possibly can. Seek the things that are above. And in a style that's characteristic of Hebrew poetry, for emphasis, he says the same thing again using different words. Set your mind on things that are above. It's almost as if there's a, an imperative for each eyeball so that we might see the depth uh, in stereo, in relief, with vivid imagination, seek the things above. Set your mind on the things that are above. That's the great invitation and imperative of our text. 
It's hard these days to do that. It's hard to think about heaven. A story told of a, of a visiting preacher who comes to a country church and he's trying to grab the attention of the congregation. And he says, every one of you in this parish will someday die. Except there's this one little young adult smirking in the front row. And he says, what, what is it with you? And he says, well, I'm not from this parish. I'm here to visit my sister for the weekend. <laughs> See, we just don't get it. And then there's this old saying, you know, of uh, you people are so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good, as though all we would see is what's above and not the car immediately in front of us. But C.S. Lewis says, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, those who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Set your minds on things above. Why, Paul? Why this heavenly preoccupation? Well, we want to note the context of these imperatives Let's just back up a little bit, take a wider angle, look at the whole letter. Let's begin at the beginning of the letter and just see how Paul introduces this letter. This is fascinating to me. You know, if you've read much of the New Testament, that Paul will oftentimes link three words together. Faith, hope, and love. All, he, frequently, Paul does it. It's a hallmark of, of his theology. He does that here, the beginning of Colossians, but notice this, how he relates them to one another. A very distinct arrangement. Uh, here at chapter 1, Paul says, uh, in our prayers, we always thank God uh, for you. For, verse 4, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. He says, wow, your faith in Christ Jesus is just famous. We've heard of it from afar. And, he goes on to say, we have heard of the love that you have for all the saints. He goes, it's renowned. The way you all in Colossae love people is just so countercultural. And, and so you might ask the question, where does that come from? Paul gives us the answer. In the next verse, he says, because or on account of, that is your faith, your love, are yours in this way demonstrated today because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. There's a new wellspring. He says, I, 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 I admire your faith in Jesus Christ. I admire your love. And I'm going to tell you where it comes from. We, we all know that it comes from your hope in heaven. So, the first answer to a question, why this heavenly preoccupation, is simply that a daily preoccupation with heaven will inspire us. It's going to inspire us to live with a kind of faith in Jesus Christ and love for the people around us that isn't available from any other source but a hope in heaven. Inspirational. The second thing that answers our first question here, a daily preoccupation with heaven protects us, it inspires us, but it also protects us. Paul is not unaware of the cultural currents in Colossae. He's not unaware of cultural currents that are there that I'm here to tell you are very much present in our lives today. 
And I call these two cultural currents, on the one hand, dogmatism, and on the other hand, dissipation. If we tighten up around these two imperatives just a little bit closer, close the aperture a bit, sort of zoom in on these two imperatives, the immediate context has to do with dogmatism and dissipation. Right above uh, chapter 3, at the end of chapter 2, we read here that apparently there are people that are running around with a rules-based worldview. Do not touch. Do not handle. Do not taste. And Paul says, hey, don't, don't concern yourself with that. That's dogmatism. There's people who have sharp, pokey elbows who are trying to define their life simply by setting fixed parameters, making life real easy for you with these rigid frames. The result is they are people who are not marked by hope so much as condemnation. In verse 16, he says, don't let let anyone condemn you. Well, in matters of food and drink and the moons and the calendar and festivals and Dogmatism. It was there, and it's here. Likewise, on the other hand, if we read after this, these two imperatives, we'll see dissipation. Now, if dogmatism is uh, about uh, living within a rigid frame, dissipation is living with no points of reference at all, except oneself. Which means that when I want to do something, I really have no moral categories or, 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 or there's nothing that would guide my choices other than what I think would make me happy. God probably wants me happy. This would make me happy. Therefore, it's okay. And so Paul says, you know, there, there are people and there are within us temptations towards, and he lists a couple of things. There's two lists. In verse 5, there's a list that has to do with the stewardship of our sexuality. He says fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And some of your Bibles will, will re- re- translate that uh, covetedness. See that, and they move, by the way, from the um, uh, from the outside in, getting right to the heart of our sexual identity. And 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 he says, you know, there's a kind of a dissipation where we where we lose ourselves without if we have no point of reference. And in the same way, there's a list that speaks to relational dissipation that, again, moves from here at this time from the inside out. Verse 8, uh, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language. When you have no points of reference, then your soul is just dissipating. But Paul doesn't spend much time on either of these. Notice the imperatives do not address themselves to either of these. Paul does not allow himself to be recruited by either camp. He will not be enlisted with the dogmatists. He'll resist that. He will not be enlisted with those who uh, live in dissipation. And that's kind of a disappointment to many of us. Because many of us, the, the legalists inside of us, would want Paul very much to be the guy who endorses our rigid frameworks and our condemnation, not only of our others, but even of ourselves. Paul won't yield. Likewise, there is within us a libertine spirit that when we go and please ourselves and live a life that could be crassly or baldly described as self-centeredness, uh, uh, we want Paul's uh, authority and say, yeah, it's just all, whatever you want to do, it's fine. And Paul won't yield there. He's not interested in our cultural wars. He's not interested in these two extremes. And I think the reason for that is there is not hope in either end of that spectrum. 
German theologian Jürgen Moltmann says that there are two forms of hopelessness in the world. The one is presumption, and the other is despair. Presumption is when we take the fulfillment of hope into our own hands and no longer hope for God. In despair, we doubt that there ever can be fulfillment and therefore destroy hope in ourselves. These are the two extremes. The dogmatist wants to build a life on fixed rungs that he or somebody else has clearly articulated for them, and they want to climb that ladder, hoping that they would someday find the life that they long for. And Moltmann, I mean, Moltmann says it's not there. That's just a, another form of hopelessness. Or the, those who feel a sense of emptiness in our longing and want to just mitigate that or medicate that somehow with the dissipation of, of life, And all we can do is try to kill the hope and the longing within us to get along. Hopelessness comes on either end. But the Apostle Paul is after hope because there is hope in Jesus Christ. He knows it, and it's available to his audience. So he says, seek the things that are above. Set your mind. These verbs, to seek means to aim at. To orient your life towards. To take possession of that which is there, already yours, today, here now. Seek the things that are above. The other verb, set your mind on the things that are above. This one uh, could, could be translated, not so much to think about something, but to hold a settled opinion. To maintain an attitude. To see the things that are above. And to make a decision about them, to maintain a settled attitude that this is what defines you and your life today. Both verbs, by the way, are in the Greek continuous aspect, which means it's not a decision you may make. And you may have made a decision like this 15 years ago or even yesterday. But the Apostle Paul's not interested. He's interested in today continuously be seeking. Without ending, moment by moment, be setting your mind on the things of heaven. Well, what then we, we, we want to ask are the things that are above? What's up there, metaphorically speaking? What are we imagining? What's Paul inviting us to conceive such that our hope would grow and issue forth in faith and life? Well, I, I think it's, I think frankly, it'd be a surprise for us. If we could actually pull back the veil and see heaven. And I, I want to get at that with a little bit of, of a story that I've adapted from Robert Farrar Capon, who imagines the character w- one day going up into heaven. And, uh, and he gets surprised by what he sees. So Capon tells a story about a man who shows up at the resurrection with all of his record books as if it were an IRS audit. So in this context, we might imagine that he has a book to document his compliance with all of his favorite dogmas. Oh, yes. On the one hand. And then maybe on the other arm is another book that offers some degree of rationale or justification for his favorite dissipations. Well, you know, these were the circumstances, right? So armed with these two books, he wants to bring them up and check his bookkeeping against Jesus's. 
And now, Capon uh, asks the question, do you know what Jesus is going to say to him if he comes to the re- resurrection with a request like this? And here's Jesus. Just forget it, Arthur. I suppose we have those books around here somewhere, and if you're really determined to stand in front of my great white throne and make a fool of yourself, I guess they can be opened. Frankly, though, nobody up here pays any attention to them. What will happen is that while you're busy reading and weeping over everything in those books, I will go and open my other book, the book of life. The book about everybody I ever drew to myself by dying and rising. And when I open that book, I'm going to read out to the whole universe every last word that's written there. And you know what it's going to be? It's going to be just Arthur. Nothing else. None of your bad deeds, because I erased them all. And none of your good deeds, because I didn't count them, I just enjoyed them. So what I'll read out, Arthur, will just be Arthur, real loud. And my father will smile and say, hey, Arthur, you're just the way I pictured you. And the universe will giggle and say, that's some Arthur you got there. But me, I'll just wink at you and say, Arthur, Come up here and plunk yourself down by my great white throne and let's you and me have a good long practice laugh before this party gets so loud we can't even hear how much fun we're having. That'd be a surprise to most of us. I don't know if Capon gets the details exactly right, but I do know this. Paul gives us some fixed points. He gives us some details. Let's look at just three things real quick. Victory, freedom, and wholeness. First, we see victory. Like Capon, Paul envisions Jesus seated, verse 1. He's seated at the right hand of God. Now, this is victory. This is an allusion to Psalm 110. Do you know that Psalm 110 was the early church's favorite psalm? Psalm. 33 times in the New Testament, there is reference to Psalm 110. They love this because they saw that it was a psalm about Jesus Christ, particularly. And, and, and here's how Psalm 110 begins. The Lord says to my Lord, which, by the way, means the Lord, that's I am, that's the divine name, says to my Lord, which is the king. This is a royal psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, my king, sit at my right hand until I make your, your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your foes. And so, to see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father is to see Jesus as the long-anticipated king. The suffering, disenfranchised, brutally beaten and crucified Jesus now sits enthroned. A conqueror over all that threatens him, and because he came for us, you. All of your fears, all of your anxieties, all of your doubts, bewilderments, points of pain, the moments of darkness. The enemies have ganged up on you, but you have a picture of Jesus who puts his feet on those broken enemies. That's what you see. Victory. That's the first thing. This, uh, and I, By the way, uh, Frederick Beekner writes this, resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. 
What a great line for this week. Resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. What's the worst thing that's happening to you right now? What's the worst thing that could happen to you right now? The worst thing is never the last thing. Resurrection. You see victory there, don't you? The second thing you see is freedom. If we pay close attention here, we're going to notice that there is a little bit of symmetry around these two imperatives. On either side of them is a ground for the command, the basis for the command. Uh, In verse 1, we see that you've been raised with Christ. In verse uh, 3, we see that you have died with Christ. In Paul's mind, when you're baptized, you are baptized into the drama of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. We participate. He has, God has come in Jesus Christ to die for us. It's our death, Paul says. And he has come to rise for us. It's our resurrection. So, Paul kind of, he's, he looks, you know, he's just, he says, you guys are living on the other side of your funeral. Right? Take a look at the tenses. You have died. You have risen. You're saying, George, I, I don't remember you doing my funeral. And they would say the same thing to Paul. Well, I, I, did I miss that? How was the food? Uh, you know, were people sad? Paul says, never mind, because whatever your life was all about, it has come to a conclusion. When Jesus' life came to a conclusion. And, and now, you go, well, what's it about? Why did I get up this morning? Now, your life is about whatever Jesus' life is about. It's a whole new deal. And here's the way I think about it. Any of you video gamers? You know, okay, okay pinball players? Come on, you, if, you, if you've played a video game, you play a video game, you start to do well, what happens on the screen? You get another life. This little icon comes up, it's another life. You play well, you can acquire more lives faster than you lose them. And in a way, this is the freedom that we experience. We're free right now. Because your life is already finished. And you've got all the rest is gravy. You're into extra innings. And it, the innings will keep on going into eternity. It's the bonus round. So we see victory, we see freedom. Thirdly, we see wholeness. This is my favorite part about this passage. Paul says in verse 3, your life is hidden. Now, people around you in our culture doesn't think this is true of you. They think they know who you are. They think that your life is defined by your GPA. They think it's defined by your salary bracket, by your membership in this union or that club. They think it's defined by your physical handicap. They think your life is defined by your wealth, the kind of car that you drive, your sexual identity. They think it's defined by your friendships. And the Apostle Paul is here to say, no, no, no. That's not who you are. That's who they think you are. You don't even know who you are. Your life is hidden. Not just to them, hidden to you as well. You don't know the real you. Except insofar as you raise your gaze into the panorama of heaven. And there with Christ, you'll see your life whole, absolutely perfect and renewed, solid. The unique, unrepeatable miracle that you are in all of its glory is in Christ and with Christ. And so John says, beloved, We are God's children now. 
What we will be has not yet been revealed. But we do know this. When he, Jesus, is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. This, I think, is the importance of uh, Capon's little phrase there that may have caught you. When the father says, you're just like I pictured you. It's not that the father wasn't Arthur's creator or didn't watch over his entire life. It's that God has a vision of who Arthur is that only he can see. And that in that space, in eternity, God sees and all of creation, the universe, sees Arthur for the first time just as God pictured him. God has a picture of who you are as well. And you can begin to get a sense of it when you set your mind on things above. So that's the point. Mindset on heaven, find hope for life today. Let me just explore this with you a a, a little bit in some practical terms. I just want you to notice, you and I have hope in Jesus Christ. We have hope. It's exactly what the world needs. You don't have to go to the health club. You don't have to talk to people at work to know this. You can just read the Internet, the news, and see that we live in a day where there is not economic hope, there is not sociopolitical hope, there is not religious hope. There is not environmental hope, but we have hope. We know. We know the name of hope himself. It's Jesus Christ. Does this make life easy? No, absolutely not. It's as much a mistake uh, to think that heaven is here as to not think of heaven at all. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8 that all of creation is groaning. And your life and mine right now are groaning. Because right now, heaven has not been fulfilled. Though it's here, it's not complete. But even in our pain, we find the hope of heaven. Again, Jürgen Moltmann. Experience and hope, that is what we feel today, and our hope initially clash in Christian faith. Between them is the remembrance of Christ crucified by the powers of this world. There's darkness. It's only beyond the cross that we can see the first daybreak colors of God's new world. This means that Christian hope is a hope against hope, or a hope where there is nothing else left to hope for. That's what's between dogmatism and dissipation. The cross of Jesus Christ that holds us in our pain. A friend of mine said, uh, George, you know, uh, um, the thing that my wife and I feared the most was that God would give us a child with special needs. And he says, I know it sounds horrible to say that, but I just, I just did not think that we could handle it. And so we prayed. And we had two children, and they didn't have special needs. But now that I'm a grandparent, the whole story has changed because my daughter's 11-year-old son has been diagnosed with extreme autism. He said, I gotta tell you, it is so hard. In retirement, I have found myself preoccupied. The whole family, every single one of us, have had to sacrifice and wrap our arms around this child and his, and his mom and his dad. It's just so hard for us. And yet, my friend has hope. And he quoted to me from the book of Job. He says, you know, George, when he has tested me, I shall come out like gold. His eternal character is being forged. The resurrection means that the worst things are not the last things. 
And in fact, C.S. Lewis has to interact with this question of, won't the pain of our lives overshadow any hope that we could get from heaven? And Lewis says, no, no, no. Heaven works backwards. Catch this out. Uh, Check this out. One of his characters in Great Divorce says, I think earth, earth, if chosen instead of heaven, that is, if we set our minds on earth, it will turn out to have been all along only a region in hell. And earth, though, if put second to heaven, setting our eyes above, to have been from the beginning a part of heaven itself. This is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for this, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. And some of the sinful pleasures that they say, let me have but this and I'll take the consequences, little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled with only dreariness. And that is why, at the end of all things, when the sun rises here in heaven and the twilight turns to blackness down there, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except heaven. And the lost, we were always in heaven. And both will speak truly. Another man in California did very well in business. 35 years ago, Silicon Valley, his own startup, great time to be doing what he was doing, was thriving. Except 35 years ago, his, his wife was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. It was a stop dead in your tracks moment. You could hear the brakes squealing in his life. He said, when she got MS, I got MS. How do you respond? He was a man with hope. He sold the company, and he dedicated himself to caring for her for 35 years. If you see this couple today, you would see a couple who enjoy more love than you can imagine. He is a man who is marked by joy. She has been nearly fully incapacitated, sits in a chair, can only move one hand. And yet, the love is so beautiful, you would have to see it to believe it. He would tell you, he has been to heaven even before he got there. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For surely I know the plans I have for you, plans for your welfare and not for your harm, to give you a future with a hope. Minds set on heaven find hope for life today. It does not mean that there will not be a car who suddenly stops in front of you. It does not mean you will not hit that car. It does not mean the cancer will go away. It does not mean the marriage will work. But it does mean this, that you and I have a hope in Jesus Christ that he will be with us through every moment and that the power of his resurrection will be at work in your life and through your life in that situation. So that we need not just see what's in front of us, but can lift our eyes to see the panorama of God's eternal grace. Set your minds on the things that are above. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you know. 
the broken places of our life. Thank you that you are bold to stare right into them, even the darkness, even the places of rebellion and evil. Thank you that you do so because you love us and you want to meet us in that darkness, take us by the hand and lift us skyward into eternity, even today. May we respond to these imperatives. May we see ourselves as a church as raw and new and young and clueless as the church in Colossae, that we might in faith respond and say yes to you and learn what it means to be a people who live with infectious hope. We pray this for your sake, for your glory, and in your name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.